On March the 3rd, 1934, uh, John Dillinger escaped from the county jail in Crown Point, Indiana, using a wooden gun. FBI public enemy number one, Dillinger, uh, was awaiting trial for the murder of an East Chicago police officer. From September 1933 to July 1934, Dillager and his gang terrorized the Midwest by killing 10 men, uh, wounding seven, robbing banks, staging three jailbreaks, killing a sheriff uh, during one, and wounding two others uh, in another uh, jailbreak as well. Authorities boasted that the Crown Point Jail was escape-proof. Now, Dillinger escaped with what he claimed was a wooden gun he had whittled. He forced a guard to open his cell, then he grabbed two machine guns, locked up the guards, and then fled. It was a very daring escape. And in this 12th chapter of the book of Acts, we have an account of another outstanding uh, prison escape which can only be described as being miraculous. Peter was set free from prison, but it was not due to any make-believe weapon he possessed, but because of the power of prayer. He had no escape plans. He dug no escape tunnel. He braved no prison guards, nor sawed through any iron bars. He simply got up out of bed walked out through the security gates undetected. No alarm bells rang. No force was used to restrain him. No effort was made to prevent him leaving. And what about the outer gate that opened of its own accord to let him out into the city? This is a tremendous story. There's no doubt about that. And from it, I'm going to preach the gospel tonight. I want to think about the prisoner in a cell as representing the sinner. Are you with me now? Representing the sinner, held captive by the devil, in need of deliverance by the miraculous power of God from an awful fate, the fate of a lost eternity. So bear with me tonight as we think about this great escape that is brought to attention here in Acts chapter 12. I have three very simple things, maybe familiar uh, things that you've heard preachers preach on before. I make no apology for using uh, them. This is the way I see it myself. I've come to this understanding as I studied it uh, by myself. First of all, Peter was a fettered man. What do I mean by that? Well, we're told here in verse 4 that he had been apprehended by the enemy of the church. By that I mean Herod, who was an opponent of the church of Jesus Christ. And the word that is translated apprehended here means to seize, it means to take, to catch, to capture, to lay hold of. So the point I'm stressing is this, that Herod, the enemy of the church, got his hands on Peter and had no intentions of letting him go. Now we can apply that to men and women today who are firmly uh, snapped by the devil himself and held in his clutches and the devil doesn't want to give up his prey. He doesn't want to lose men and women for Jesus Christ's sake, for the sake of the gospel. As far as he was concerned, Peter was going to die 
not his hands. He was going to shut up the preacher. And that would have caused great delight to the Jews at that time. And this reminds me of the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. And the Bible tells us that they were held in hard bondage. Exodus chapter 1 verse 14. Pharaoh the king had enslaved them and he didn't want to let them go. They were in his service. They were valuable to him. They were valuable to the Egyptians. And in the Bible, I'm sure you know this by now, that Egypt represents the world. Therefore, Pharaoh the king represents the God of the world. And the uh, devil and his crowd wanted to hold on to the people of God, didn't want to let them go. But the message that God gave through uh, Moses, let my people go. In other words, God wanted to deliver his people from bondage and set them free. And this uh, was the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into the world because in Luke chapter 4, he, or, he, he, he said that he had come to uh, proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives, uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. So that was the reason why he came. He came to liberate, he came to set free men and women held captive by the powers of darkness. It says then were the days of unleavened bread. It was a feast time, and that particular feast lasted for seven days. It's associated with the Passover, and when the Jews gathered together to celebrate Passover, they were celebrating their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. It also spoke of redemption in Christ, because Christ is our Passover. So we have these people in bondage. There's the thought of Passover, the thought of redemption, the thought of deliverance from the power of the oppressor. And uh, due to the devil's work, Peter was prevented from joining in these activities. He was in prison for the whole week, and this was due to the power of Herod, and at the end of that time, he was due to die. So we can draw a simple lesson from this, that Satan's purpose is to keep people from hearing about the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants you to have your ears closed to this truth, to this message. Uh, he would rock you to sleep in church. He would take away any gospel desires that you may have had in your heart over the years. He doesn't want you to hear the gospel. He doesn't want to let you go. He doesn't want you to be liberated, to become a child of God. He wants to claim you for his own and take you to that place that he is, well, one day will be consigned to himself out into a lost eternity. The devil fears the message of salvation. The devil hates the man of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he dreads the marvel of salvation because when the gospel is hold upon a man or woman, it changes that man or that woman. The devil doesn't want people to love. He wants them to die. He wants them to perish. The Jews at that time had to remove all leaven from their houses and leaven in the Bible speaks to us of sin and we have this whole thought of redemption, uh, the thought of repenting of your sins and seeking the Lord and coming to trust in him and, and, and men would like to go to heaven but they want to take their sins with them. They don't want to leave their sins. They don't want to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. They want to have a guarantee of heaven but they don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to have to walk the uh, narrow way with the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to enjoy their sin and their pleasure. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way 
God has ordained it. There's got to be a turning from sin and an embracing of Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel freely. Men have got to come to Christ by putting their faith and trust in him alone for salvation. And we're told that Peter was kept in prison. Verse 5, this was the Antonia stronghold at the northwest end of the temple area. And we're told in verse 6, he was bound with two chains. He was between two soldiers. He was guarded by four quaternions, four groups of four, that is, of soldiers, 16 soldiers, delegated to this one man, public enemy number one, the way back then. Four soldiers were needed for each guard duty. So he had two soldiers by his side. He was chained to them, no doubt. And then there were two soldiers at the door outside the cell, keeping guard as well. He therefore was confined under close military guard with no possibility of an escape. And if anything was going to happen, it had to come from above because no one could get in. They would have to take on the two soldiers. Then if they did get in, they would have to take on the other two soldiers that Peter was chained to. So you can see the impossible situation that Peter was in. And uh, if there was to be any deliverance, it would need to come from above. It had to be miraculous. Now, Herod had his people uh, to make sure Peter couldn't escape. You have the guards. We can think of them as the worldly crowd that uh, you are familiar with, the worldly crowd that you may run with or are associated with, your friends. You go into the pub. You go into the game tonight. You're going to come here. You're going to go to the dance. You're going to go to the movies and so on. You have all these people around about you enticing you to sin, uh, seeking to keep you away from the things of God. That's the devil's crowd. Beware of the devil's crowd. Then his uh, prison, uh, that was a certain environment uh, which kept Peter there. Uh, and, and you have this whole thought, the devil has you in an environment that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-religion. And it's hard to shake free from that kind of environment. Peer pressure, other kinds of pressure are upon you. You're out, uh, outdated, you're old-fashioned, you're not modern. Do you believe that stuff nowadays? Nobody believes that anymore. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's got a passport to get there. You're an old funny daddy if you believe these things. And when young people get to college, no doubt these are the things that they meet on a regular basis, it will soon drag you down. It will hinder you in your walk with God unless you get above it and look to the Lord and trust in him and live a separate life unto the glory of the Savior's name. So the devil has his crowd. The devil has his environment to keep you there and he had his plan. His plan was to end Peter's life. You think of the story of, of Samson. The Bible tells us in Judges sixteen twenty one that when the Philistines took him, they bound him with fetters of brass. Now, that's uh, deeply significant. At first, he was bound with seven green withs. In verse 7 of that chapter, you could have broken those quite easy. Then they moved on to new ropes in verse 11. But then it came to the point that he was put into fetters of brass. The point I want to emphasize is this. The longer a person remains in sin, the harder it is to get free from Satan's grip. The firmer Satan's grip gets upon your life. People maybe start with a smoke in school, maybe tobacco. Then they move on to something stronger. 
They may be tempted with a beer shandy. Beer and lemonade mixed together, that's just not too bad. That'll not do any harm. Then they move on to a beer and then they move on to whiskey and so on. And that's the way it starts. That's the way it started in my own life. Something simple. Then it began to get a grip of my life and I'm only too thankful that God intervened and saved me early. The longer you live in sin, the harder it becomes to get free from that sin and the devil will keep you under pressure and will not let you go because he wants to damn your soul and take you down to a Christless eternity. And so the withs become ropes and the ropes become chains Oh, brass, maybe that's the way it is in your life. You can sense that now. You can identify with, with this. You know only too well this is the way it's been in your experience. You're getting hard to the gospel and different to even attending the house of God. Maybe things have crossed your mind. Why should I bother anymore? I, if I get religious, if I get right with God, I lose my friends. I will be considered to be an outcast. Nobody will want to know me. Where will I get a boyfriend? Where will I get a girlfriend? Where will I get a mate? That's the thoughts that may come to mind. The devil uh, conveniently brings these things to your mind. And then we're told in verse 6 that Peter was sleeping. He, he was scheduled for trial and execution the next morning. And what was he doing? He wasn't praying for deliverance. He wasn't up on his knees at the bedside in the prison praying, Oh God, deliver me. He wasn't writing his last will and testament. He wasn't crying, he wasn't screaming, he wasn't begging for mercy. What was he doing? He was sleeping like a baby in the cell without a care in the world. Do you see that? What an amazing scene we have here. No worries, no fears, all is well with the soul. God had given to him that peace that passeth all understanding. Now, the word for prison only occurs here in the New Testament, and it literally means dwelling. I thought that was interesting. The abiding presence of the Lord in the prison had converted Peter's cell into a home. He just felt pretty much like home, fast asleep there in his favorite place. I wonder if he snored. Did the prisoners hear him? Oh, when Paul and, and Silas were in the prison, they sang and the prisoners heard them. Did he snore? I don't know. But he was, he was out of it. He was trusting in the Lord. So Paul's in prison, he's singing. And Peter, he's in prison, and he's sleeping. He had no fears. But we can also think about the scene here with Peter uh, as a type of a sinner. His eyes are closed. Death is just around the corner, and he was sleeping. Death and judgment are coming, and you're still oblivious to your fate, your eternal destiny, where you will be in eternity. Waking up. Waking up. Realize for the first time as never before that you're a sinner in need of God's mercy and God's grace and God's salvation. You need to be delivered. You need to be set free. You need to be born again of the Spirit of God and have your sins forgiven and be prepared for heaven, for home, and for glory. Because after all, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the first thing that we notice here, that Peter was a fettered man. But then Peter was also a favored man. Now, why do I say that? I say that for two reasons. In verse 2, we read that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And then we read he proceeded further to take Peter also. Verse 3, James was slain. Peter was spared. 
Providence ordered it so. Many have been cut off, but God has spared you. Many of the people that you attended school with are gone. You're still alive, still in the land of a living. Many in eternity, but you have been given, given more opportunities, more privileges. Why did God allow James to die and Peter to live? Why did he permit one to be removed and the other to remain? Obviously, the Lord has something more for Peter to do. Now, the interesting thing is that we never hear tell of Peter. He's never mentioned again in the book of Acts. But he did write two New Testament epistles. Obviously, he had been spared to do a work for God. And uh, you think of your childhood days, you think of workmates, you think of friends that you knew very well and the housing estate where you live, whatever. You think of them and they're gone. They're no more. They're in eternity. And God has you alive on earth and he has you alive on earth for a reason to give you an opportunity to repent of your sins and to believe the gospel that he may take you and use you for his glory, for his praise. What a wonderful thought that is to be used of God. Abel was righteous. Cain, his brother, was not. Yet Abel died first, murdered by his brother Cain, who was allowed to live. Why did God allow that to happen? By the way, Abel was the first man who went to heaven. The privilege of going to heaven. The first man to enter through the pearly gates. If we can use that expression. Why did he allow Abel to die and spared Cain to live a little bit longer because Abel had accomplished what God intended him to accomplish and he being dead yet speaketh his testimony lives on that's the important thing how will people remember you in 10, 20 years time or after your death how will they remember you what will they think about you all good crack nice man, nice woman friendly person and we hear these things all the time at funerals. He was a good person. We don't really know, of course, what kind of person they really were. But here we know about Abel, that he being dead yet speaketh. He had a testimony. He was right with God. He will ever be remembered as a worshiper of God. And as far as Abel or Cain is concerned, he will be remembered as a man who wandered from God. And then as they came... The day came when he passed over into eternity. It was a different story. Abel was the first man to enter into heaven, but when Cain came to die, he went out into the dark, but to be with the damned in a lost eternity. And he's still there thousands of years later, and he will continue in that same state, separated from God in eternal darkness and agony and pain in the lake of fire forever and ever. No way out, no escape, no light at the end of the tunnel. As he lived, so he died, so he perished. And he's there now in a lost eternity. It's an awful place to go to, hell. Think about it. Think about being in that awful place of separation from God, of physical torment, of spiritual conflict, of darkness, of the fires, of a lost eternity. The memory still lives but nothing to relieve the conscience. People in life, they do things, and they can't live with their conscience. It's a nightmare for them living. That's the reason why many of them commit suicide, but that makes it even worse. Think about it. 
Going over in your mind forever and ever the things that you did. No release. No, no light at the end of the tunnel. Dark, dark for all of God's eternity. And we're told here that Herod was intending after Easter to bring him forth to put him to death. However, God had other plans. I think of Jezebel, a woman that we read of in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, the Lord said, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. That sums up the life of many people. And that word space means time. It means delay. So God delayed the execution of judgment upon this woman to give her opportunity to repent. To repent. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear she repented not. God is merciful. God is long-suffering and, and, uh, with, with men and women, giving them opportunity after opportunity. And away behind the scenes, a band of people gathered together in a room to pray. They prayed specifically for Peter. Maybe a wife of yours has been praying for you, a husband has been praying for you, a son has been praying for you. Praying for many years, you've given them no encouragement. You've discouraged them many, many times, but they keep on praying. You may not like it, but they're praying for you. They're praying that God will save you and bring you to your senses. Open your blinded eyes, because they have insight into what awaits you when you stand before God. An awful long eternity. Prayer really is a turning point in the story. Never underestimate the power of prayer. And so here prayer was being maintained for a week. The but of verse 5 spelled Herod's doom but signaled Peter's deliverance. And as the gates of Herod's prison clanged shut, the gates of heaven swung open. Oh, what a wonderful picture we have here. Peter was a favored man. The very fact you're here tonight, God has brought you. It's not a, a coincidence that you're here. God has brought you in his grace to this meeting to hear this message, to let you know that he's given to you another opportunity to get right with God. But his patience does have an end. My spirit shall not always strive with man. And when that happens, it doesn't matter what else goes on in life, you'll never have thought again about coming to the house of God or desire to seek God or desire to be in the company of the people of God. That will be taken away completely. And you will just go on and you'll live the rest of your days ready to drop into the caverns of the down forever at the end of the journey of life. The Lord will never lift a finger again to warn you, to appeal to you again. And Peter was a fettered man. He was a prisoner. He was chained. He was fettered. He, he was a favored man. And then finally, he was a freed man. In response to the prayers of the people of God, the answer came the same night. That was a swift response to the prayer. It came in the same night. The very night that he was going to, uh, his last night on earth, uh, the Lord stepped in uh, in a powerful fashion. I wondered about that. The Lord could have set him free any night of that week had he so desired it. Why did they keep waiting to the last moment, to the very night before the day of his execution? Because God kept Peter waiting and trusting in him to perform a miracle. While he was sleeping, God was working. 
So here he is, he's fast asleep, and God's working. And at the very last minute, God intervened. It was then that the angel of the Lord came in verse 7. It was an intervention from above. I've mentioned this before. The angel of the Lord came. The Bible does say in John 3, verse 7, except a man be born again, or that word again means from above. And so the new birth is from above. It's a divine intervention. That's what men need to have, a divine intervention. Remember in verse 7 there, the story we read there a moment ago, a light shined in the prison, verse 7. It was night, according to verse 6. Peter was in the dark. There's a spiritual application there. He needed the light. And Jesus Christ said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In addition, Peter was sleeping, verse 6. And the angel, in verse 7, smote Peter in the side. He needed to be awakened. I don't know if your children get up early in the morning to go to school. And maybe you have to go in and prod them a few times. Come on, Jimmy, come on. Sammy there, come on, get up. It's time to go to school. If this, you've done your homework and it's time to get away there down to the school to do arithmetic and to do your, your, your spellings and all that kind of thing. <laughs> they want to turn over again and forget about school. So the mum has got to keep on prodding. Come on, get up, son. And, and so here's Peter. He's fast asleep. And the Bible tells us that the angel smote Peter on the side. He needed to be awakened. And that word that is used means to strike gently. He needed to be shaken. He needed a prod. And Peter felt the blow on the side, you see. That's the point. The sinner needs to feel his need of Christ. And raise them up. Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5.14 Think about the urgency. Arise up quickly. That was the message. Arise up quickly. You're in the dark. You need to be awakened. You need to do it quickly. I'm here. Divine intervention is here. You need to awake. For all you know, tomorrow... You could be summoned to meet God, maybe even tonight. But as far as Herod was concerned and as Peter was concerned, he was going to die tomorrow. Therefore, in the light of this, arise up quickly. And the Bible tells us in verse 7, his chains fell off. Everything was done for him. Do you see that? God snapped the chains, but he was commanded, gird thyself, bind on thy sandals, put on the garment of salvation, put on the sandals to walk. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. Man has the responsibility to believe the gospel and trust Christ for salvation. So the message is being presented to you tonight. Salvation through faith in Christ. God is sovereign in salvation. He freely bestows his grace and his mercy. But man has the responsibility under God when the Spirit of God uh, works upon the mind and the heart of the unconverted man or woman, bringing to them that light and giving to them that ability to repent of their sins, to believe the gospel and to come to Christ, man has a responsibility to come to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Remember the time Joseph was called out of the prison into the presence of, of Pharaoh and the Bible says he shaved himself and he changed his raiment. He was adorned with a ring, fine linen, a gold chain. He was no longer a prisoner. He became a prince. And that's the way it is in salvation. You, you think of the radical change. He's, he's tending to the prisoners in a prison down there in Egypt. 
And the call comes from the king. The king is calling for you, Joseph. What does he do? He shaves himself. He throws off the old garments. We can look upon this as repentance. Changing. Coming to Christ. Fleeing to Christ, the king of glory. And so there's a change here. He's coming into the presence of the king. He finds acceptance there. He's given all these particular things that marks him now as a prince. He becomes the prime minister's life has changed radically by the power of God. He's given a new standing, a new position. Everything changes. God breaks in and Peter breaks out. When God comes and touches his people, there is liberty because the chains fell off. Bind on thy sandals, follow me, as the command in verse 8. Those who are delivered must follow their deliverer. There it is. It's clear, simple. It's not complicated. He wished not in verse 9. He could hardly take it in. He could hardly believe what was happening. It was so marvelous. It was so amazing, so wonderful. Just like the Psalm 126. The people of Israel could hardly believe when God delivered them. Oh, they could hardly take it in. So wonderful. And that's an amazing thing, men and women, tonight. When God saves you, it's a marvelous thing. You'll hardly know yourself. Your language will be changed. Your attitude in life will be changed. Your appearance will be changed. Your desires will be changed. Your longings will be changed. You want to go in a different direction. You want to be with the people of God. You want to be in the house of God in the place of prayer. You want to read the Bible. You want to listen to the preaching of God's precious truth. That's the evidence of grace, the evidence of a change. A changed life following the deliverer, following Christ. Following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The incident took place at Passover when the Jews celebrated their exodus from Egypt. And the word delivered that is used in verse 11 is the same word that Stephen used when he spoke about the exodus in Acts chapter 7, 34. So Peter's experience was a new kind of exodus in answer to prayer. The Lord can set you free tonight. He can change you. He can change your home. He can change your outlook. He can change even your family through your leadership and your guidance. The whole scene can be changed radically, powerfully in a moment of time through grace and grace alone. What hinders you? What holds you back? Do you not realize the danger you're in? Do you not realize the fate that awaits you? Do you not realize the length of eternity? You'll never go out of existence as a lost sinner. Always perishing but never really perished. And on and on and on forever and ever. The tides of God's wrath, the billows of God's wrath over you all the time for eternity. Never go out of existence. Damned. But there's mercy with God. They went out, verse 10. He was guided out of the environment that he had been in. As a captive, do you see that? When God sets people free, he leads them out of the environment that they've been in as captives. He sets them free. He liberates them. And then forthwith the angel departed from him in verse 10. Apart from telling him to get up, to get dressed, and to get going, the angel had said nothing. It was to lead him out and to lead him on. That was the purpose of the ministry of the angel of God. He did not tell Peter how to proceed with his ministry. That was the work of the Spirit. 
This was the work of the angel of the Lord to get him out of the prison and to lead him on. And then he was to use a bit of common sense to do the rest. He left that to Peter's common sense. Where did he go to? He comes out of the prison house and he goes to the prayer house. The evidence of grace in a man's life when God delivers him and sets him gloriously free, he gets out of the prison house and he ends up in a prayer house, the prayer meeting. He knew the church would be there. He got to the prayer meeting. If you're saved and you know it and you want to grow, get to the place of prayer. And I really think that many more could be with us praying on a Tuesday night. I really do. And I would ask you to make it a point of seeking by the grace and help of God to be there as often as you possibly can. Now, I'm not saying that uh, it's always possible to be there. Things happen, things can uh, crop up along the pathway of life. But I want to encourage you, as much as, as lies within you, to be in the place of prayer. Come prepared to pray. It's good for redeemed souls delivered by the power of grace to get into a praying frame and to get involved in the work of God. It was a natural place for him to go to as a believer, place of prayer. And so we can see this journey that, that Peter is on. He's a fettered man. He's a prisoner. He's bound. He's due to die. He's waiting for the execution to take place, but he's asleep. He's trusting in the Lord. He's a, a privileged man because God while he cut off James, he spared Peter and gave him further opportunities to work for him, to redeem, as it were, that wasted life and to use the rest of his life for the glory of God. And that's what the Lord wants to do with you. And then he's a freed man. He's free not to serve himself, he's free to serve God. People have this crazy idea. I'm free as a believer. I can do any old thing I want to do. I can go to the boozer if I want to go. I can drink. I can gamble. I can dance. I can do all these things. No, you don't. You can't. You have freedom to live for Christ. According to the revelation and the Holy Scriptures. Not freedom to live as you please. That's the wrong attitude. The wrong idea. It's not what the Bible teaches. There's freedom to live to please God. And when you live to please God, you live a changed life. The old world is left behind. You're changed by grace. It's the Spirit's work to lead you on with himself to make you more like Jesus Christ. You don't get saved and then live as the world. You're saved by God's grace to live like Christ and to be like Christ in a sin-cursed world to glorify him. So here's the great escape. What about it tonight? What about it? What about you? Where do you stand? What about getting it settled tonight? What about seek, seeking out some of the elders here, some believer that you know, some person that's made an impact upon your life? You know it's real with them. Do you want something that's real? Look to that man or that woman you know. Let them point you to Christ tonight. Let them share their faith with you. I'm here to help you. The elders are here to help you. Get to Christ tonight. Flee to him. Don't worry about what other people will say about you. Be concerned chiefly with what he thinks about you. What about it now? The end of the meeting. What about it? Is there a bad woman? The meeting tonight. And you're saying in your heart, Lord Jesus, I've been spoken to. 
I've been moved. I, I've known the truth of this message for years. Wasted opportunities. My friends have died, many of them, and they're lost tonight. I know that. I don't want to be lost. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. Preacher, show me the way. Well, Christ is the way. Pray in your heart now, Lord Jesus. I'm a sinner. I believe in my heart that Christ died for me according to the scriptures. Let us head in thy word, if I repent of my sins, the Lord will receive me. Him that cometh to me, I will no ways cast out. Take the promise of God. Turn from your sin. Receive and freely offered in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thank him from the depths of your heart for his mercy and goodness and grace to you. And come as a sinner to Jesus and bow the cross and get right with God just now. As I pray, you can pray from your heart. I've been in this back room. Anyone desiring to have counsel, please come to see me. Speak to the men of the church. Don't go away. Now is the accepted time. Thank God for being here tonight. Thank you for coming. May God bless you. We'll close in prayer. Father, be pleased to bless thy truth tonight. The word of God that has been preached. We pray that even now the Holy Spirit will be applying the truth to the hearts and the minds and consciences. Men and women here gathered in God's house, listening over the airwaves, in their own home, in a hall, in a church, whatever. Even now, blessed Spirit, take the things of Christ, make them real to the hearts of those who have heard. And in the closing moments of the meeting, May a man or woman, or young person, cry to thee for mercy. And thou hast said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So separate is with thy blessing. And in thy fear, may the blessing of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and abide upon all of God's believing people, now and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.